Welcome back to Gray Matters, the podcast of the Seaboyd and Gray Center for the Study of the Administrative State. I'm Adam White. Last October, the Gray Center organized a roundtable to discuss a few papers looking at the current state of judicial review of agency action. Given everything that's happening in the Supreme Court and the lower courts, we thought it was time to take stock of some interesting developments. The papers are starting to come in now, and we'll publish them as we receive each one in our working paper series. And the first to arrive was a fascinating paper by a familiar face here at the Gray Center, Ron Cass. The paper is titled The Umpire Strikes Back, Expanding Judicial Discretion for Review of Administrative Actions. And it's on our working paper series page. It's uh, working paper 21-14. So I'd encourage everybody to read the paper. And I've been looking forward to this conversation because, again, uh, Ron has been a regular contributor to the Gray Center, its roundtables, and its conferences. And so, Ron, it's nice of you to join the podcast. Always a pleasure. Now, I'm sure if you're tuning into the Gray Center podcast, you probably know who Ron is. But for those who just stumbled into this podcast, um, uh, he is Dean Emeritus of the Boston University School of Law. He was vice chairman of the United States International Trade Commission. He's a council member at the Administrative Conference of the United States. And last but not least, okay, maybe least, but last, I suppose, he is a distinguished senior fellow here at the Gray Center. Ron, it's a fascinating paper. You take a look at three widely watched and widely commented on recent Supreme Court decisions in administrative law. You find faults with each of the cases, but perhaps more importantly, you find faults with them collectively in what they signal for the future of judicial review of agency action. The case, well, I'll let you introduce the cases and, and what the theme is, Ron. What, what are we talking about here? So the, the, the cases are the Kaiser case, Kaiser against Wilkie. Uh, the Department of Commerce case, uh, New York against the Department of Commerce, and the Department of Homeland Security uh, case, all three of which came down in fairly short order, and all three of which have the same uh, result that they end up expanding the ambit of judicial review. They, They expand the discretion given to courts who are reviewing the decisions of agencies. Each one has a slightly different problem, I think, as a case, but each one gives the court another option, another avenue for considering a a challenge to agency actions. And it's the unpredictability, it's the expansion of the discretion of the courts that I think is particularly problematic and problematic across the three cases taken together. Now, we can jump into the cases one at a time, but since you teed it up that way, let me just ask a question before we start. Uh, It's this question of discretion. There's a lot of discretion in the administrative state, and I guess that's why there's a Gray Center here to study it. Um, But is this discretion a zero-sum game? Are we talking about either there's discretion in the agencies or there's discretion in the court, but we have to choose sort of between the two? Or how should we understand the, the sort of the sum total of discretion that you're talking about here? Well, it's not exactly zero-sum. Courts can be reviewing discretionary decisions of an agency under a clear standard that allows the court to defer to the agency within some domain and to actually ignore what the agency says within another domain. So the agency may have discretion over policy decisions. Uh, The court may have uh, discretion to decide how far that 
policy domain goes. Uh, and, and when the court exercises its discretion, it ought to be discretion channeled by law. The same with the agency. The agency's discretion should be channeled by law, but it can be a different sort. It can be discretion in making choices on what policy is good. Those choices can be guided by both uh, politics and scientific or technical or other considerations. For the court, it ought to be just law. The court ought to be exercising its discretion under law, and it ought to be doing it within a framework that's set by the Constitution, the statutes, things outside the court's domain. Just one last question on this, then. There is no shortage of places in Supreme Court jurisprudence or lower court jurisprudence that involve judgment calls and discretion. You think about um, everything ranging from uh, tiers of scrutiny over government regulation of speech, government regulation of religion, and all those things. Um, you have questions about, oh, at the preliminary injunction standard, right, making judgment calls about the balance of harms and all of that. The, the courts are in the judgment business, and the judgment business is often a, a discretionary business. Is what you're describing in this case different from those areas of discretion, or is what you're describing here a, a symptom of broader questions of discretion in, in federal judging. What I'm talking about is the, the, the fact that courts, when they make decisions, of course they are making judgment calls, but the judgment calls ought to be predictable. They ought to be based on criteria that are accessible to the people who deal with the courts, and they ought to be criteria that are set outside the framework of the individual case. So the, the court ought to be guided by, for instance, the Administrative Procedure Act says, here are judgments courts make, here are standards that courts use in reviewing discretionary judgments of the agency. So if it's a discretionary judgment, the court can review it for whether it's arbitrary, capricious, and abuse of discretion, not in accordance with the process or something else set by law. But the court ought not to be second-guessing the discretionary judgment of the agency within the domain set by law. The court does get to say how far the agency can go without going beyond the scope of its authority under the law. That uh, Under the APA, it very clearly says that's a judgment for courts to make. That's not the judgment that courts defer to the agency on. Now, judgment and the rule of law is a topic big enough to fill at least a, an entire podcast and an entire book. And as it happens, our guest has written a book on the subject, 2001's uh, The Rule of Law in America. So maybe we'll step uh, away from the big picture for a little bit. We'll come back to it later. Let's focus on the three cases that you're talking about here. And you could, let's take them in whatever order you'd like, not either the order you present them in the paper or whichever other order you choose. Where do you want to start? Let me start with Kaiser. Uh, okay. Uh, Kaiser uh, is a fairly straightforward case in one sense. Uh, it takes a look at the rule that comes out of Seminole Rock and the Hour Against Robbins case. Uh, and the, the rule as it comes down from Hour in 1997 is that the courts defer to the agency on interpretation of ambiguous agency rules, as long as what the agency says is not clearly erroneous, 
or radically inconsistent with the language of the rule. The, the problem with the hour rule is that it seems to say that agencies get additional degrees of discretion and additional degrees of deference from courts if they are interpreting an ambiguous rule. That can't be right. If that's right, then agency can simply write a rule saying we're giving ourselves additional degrees of discretion in this area or that area. Agency rule ambiguity can't be a source of additional agency discretion. Congress can give agencies discretion within constitutional limits. Congress can say an agency has discretion to hand out licenses uh, in the broadcast spectrum, basically however the agency wants. Congress can write a rule that because the rule is unclear, it can be a, a sense of courts that Congress meant that rule to give discretion, extra discretion to an agency. But it can't be that an agency can give itself additional degrees of discretion. So the easy thing for the court to have done in our is to say, we got it wrong. We said it wrong. We didn't mean that. Here's what we actually meant. We meant when an agency has discretion to adopt rules. And it seems like Congress has also given it discretion to interpret its rules. We'll do defer to any reasonable interpretation of the agency's rule. That's very simple. The court didn't do that. It came closer to that than the hour rule itself had. And it threw up a whole bunch of different things that the courts now should look at when they're uh, reviewing an agency's rule that's ambiguous. Uh, they have to look at whether it's a reasonable exercise of agency discretion, whether it's based on agency expertise, whether it's taken as uh, an action taken by a suitable agency official, whether it reflects the fair and considered judgment of the agency, uh, whether it doesn't cause any unfair surprise to the people dealing with the agency rule, and whether it's something that the agency is doing just in order to advance an agency position in litigation. That's a pretty big number of things to look at in trying to decide whether the agency rule interpretation is good or bad. Uh, I think it's, it, some of those are perfectly legitimate things to look at. Some of those simply restate things that the court said in a prior case. But taken together, it's too many things that give the court too much discretion to try to decide how much deference to give the agency. Okay, now I'll, I'll give a little spoiler alert to our listeners if they haven't read the paper yet. I mean, you're, ultimately, your criticism of Kaiser versus Wilkie is that the court didn't follow through and do away with, with our deference or this form of deference altogether, right? It's, it's the, the, the proper outcome would have been to follow Justice Scalia's lead, beginning with the Talk America case, and Justice Gorsuch and others, Justice Thomas, who have called for an end for, uh, for this form of, of, of deference. I mean, is that, is that putting the point fairly? That, that, that's a fair uh, statement of what I'm saying here. I, I'm not saying that the Kaiser case doesn't make progress. It does. That's what I was going to ask, actually, yeah. Yeah, it, it, there, there's a, a case, Christopher versus uh, Smith-Klein Beecham, that 
lays out some of the considerations that were not taken in our, but predate our, that mm-hmm. the court had looked at in trying to see how much it should defer to agency interpretation of its rules. That's all legitimate. And that's part of what Kaiser brings back up. But Kaiser also throws all these other things out there, many of which are also reasonable, but not necessary. What Kaiser could have simply said is we're revoking our, we didn't mean it. We're going to start with looking at, did Congress give discretion to the agency over this? And if so, did the agency exercise it reasonably? That's pretty much what our did before it made a too broad statement. Um, well, you know, we'll get back to reasoned decision-making in a second, but just one last question on this case. Um, I'm, after we record this podcast, I'm sitting down with a friend to talk about one of my favorite Federalist papers, Federalist 37, uh, where James Madison talks about vagueness and language, the inherent vag- vagueness of, of, of law, vagueness, maybe small, or maybe large, and the way in which we, we work our way through it, through governance. And I'd say that one of Madison's points along the way is that it's impossible to avoid at least some maybe tiny or large ambiguity in a law. Um, so it's not just the question, I'd say, of, of applying it here. It's not just a question of agencies giving themselves more discretion by sort of tactically writing laws, writing regulations vaguely so that they can then preserve their own discretion going forward. I mean, there is just the challenge of an agency might write a law and still leave parts of it ambiguous, you know, unintentionally. Um, they might do the best they can in a circumstance. And then afterwards, they have to grapple with that vagueness as they, that ambiguity as they, as they uh, administer their regulation. Should, does that change sort of your criticism of our and, and Kaiser versus Wilkie at all? I mean, for those cases, should there be any lingering bit of, of deference left or, or is that still a problem? Uh, it, it doesn't change it because the, the key issue isn't, is the rule ambiguous? The key issue is who has deference in interpreting the rule? Uh, if you look at the APA, the APA says, among other things, that courts interpret the Constitution, statutes, and the text of any agency action. So under the APA, it's giving the discretion there to the courts. Now, in a lot of cases, what the courts may rightly say is, we're going to tell you, here are the parameters of your authority. Here's what the statute says your authority is. Here's the parameters of what you can do consistent with this rule. But the statute also gives agencies some policy discretion. It often does that, sometimes explicitly, sometimes implicitly. You don't always have, when Congress says to the agency, give out broadcast licenses, uh, as the public interest, convenience, and necessity requires. Um, they don't have to say, and you have it, some discretion in figuring out what that means. These are big, broad, vague terms. We know that Congress was giving the agency discretion. But what Madison's point is, is that while some ambiguity often inheres in almost any instruction, very often it's not that much. Mm-hmm. Usually it's not that much. And usually when it is that much, and we're talking about a legal rule, it's up to the courts to interpret it. I don't think 
that a fair criticism of our is that it gives agencies incentives to write vague rules. Because agencies don't need incentives to write vague rules. (laughs) Not only that, the people who do the real rule writing for the agencies, the professional staff, often likes vagueness because they don't want to tie their own hands. The political appointees often want clarity because they want to tie other political appointees' hands. So it's, it's wrong to think of agencies having that incentive, and it's wrong to think of agencies as a single entity as opposed to a bunch of different people. Yeah. Okay. So back to reason decision making. And I think just my read of your paper was the, the subsequent two cases, the census case and the citizenship question case, or sorry, uh, that's the same case, the, uh, the DACA rollback case. Um, those two really, I think, are maybe even starker uh, examples of the, the overall trend that you are, are getting at here. So which one should we tackle next? Uh, the, the Homeland Security case or the commerce case? Let's take commerce. Okay. So. Go ahead. So Department of Commerce deals with a decision by the Secretary of Commerce to insert a citizenship question into the census. Now, going back to 1820 up till uh, 2010, we pretty much always had a citizenship question in the census. So this is not something radical. Um, and what the court does is it says, we're going to look at this. We're going to see. Um, Did the secretary have discretion? In terms of the questions on the census, the Constitution gives the Congress open-ended discretion. And Congress gives to administrators, uh, ultimately to the Secretary of Commerce now, also pretty open-ended discretion. So one argument here, which Justice Alito makes, is that there's nothing to review. This is unreviewable. The secretary is exercising an open-ended discretion. The court really doesn't have anything to say about this. And that's a pretty strong argument in this case. But if you don't go that route, if you put that aside, you say, well, there's something to look at. Then you ought to say the secretary has pretty broad discretion. So if he has anything reasonable that he's adding to this, we're going to let it go. And the court says that. They say, if there's anything reasonable here, we're going to let it go. It doesn't matter if it's politically influenced in some respect. That's part of the administrative process. And so you would think that ends the case. But no, it does not end the case. Because the court says, even though what the Secretary of Commerce did was within his discretion and was reasonable, and he looked at the right materials, and he gave a reasonable explanation of what he was doing and why, gave an explanation which wasn't what he really was thinking. He really was doing it for a different reason that he wasn't revealing. And because of that, we have to overturn the rule. Now, courts have for a long time said we don't look at what's in the mind of the administrator. We look at what he says. We look at if it explains what he's doing. We look at what he says at the time he's doing it. But we don't ask what's in his mind any more than the Supreme Court looks at a court of appeals decision and says, I know they explained what they were doing and it fit the law and it was reasonable, but they didn't mean it. It wasn't what they were really saying. We don't do that with judges. We don't do it with agencies. And 
the court came up with its own special rule for in rare cases that we can't describe and we can't articulate the boundaries around them, we can pull out this special card and say, uh, you may have satisfied all our normal rules, but we have a special rule for some cases where we think you're not playing straight. And we're playing that card here. Uh, that gives courts a lot of discretion and not attractive discretion. Now, is it the commerce, the commerce case, or let me try that again, in the, in the commerce case, the, is it true that the court was creating this new exception? Was, or wasn't this exception always sort of there going back? I think back to cases like Overton Park and so on, where the court, I think from the very beginning, always left itself a bit of an escape hatch that maybe there'd be cases where they would have to probe the mind of the decision maker a little bit. Um, and if that's the case, then isn't this really just a, isn't the case really a factual dispute over whether there was enough in the record to justify the court making that that sort of extra analysis of what was happening inside of Wilbur Ross's head? So I'm going to give you a lawyer's answer, which is a yes and no answer. Uh, The yes part is, yes, the courts have said from time to time that there could be exceptional cases where we want to look at what um, an administrator was doing. No, in terms of whether this is anything like what they had in mind. So the cases that are like this, like the, the Morgan cases, the court very clearly comes out, and we have to say the Morgan cases because there were four of them, and cases number two and four are the ones where the court grapples with this. And what, uh, what was the what was the Morgan what were the Morgan cases about? The, the Morgan cases it was about Fred O. Morgan and the, the Morgan Sheep Company, um, and the way their operations fit with a rule from the Secretary of Agriculture. And it's, it's just a wonderful set of cases, which um, if you're as old as I am, uh, you would have studied in administrative law. Uh, in my case with, with Kenneth Culp Davis, who I think knew Fred Morgan personally. Um, but, but those cases, the court came down and unequivocally said, we don't probe the mind of the administrator. It undermines the administrative process. It undermines the function of a coordinate branch of government. We don't do it. Yeah. And the the cases you're talking about, like Overton Park, Overton Park says that there are cases where we may do that. But in Overton Park, what decided the case was a, a legal question. Did the Secretary of Transportation have the right view of what the law was with respect to how much it could uh, divert roads in order to do things that weren't about keeping the environment nice. And, you know, it, it's a straightforward question of law that decides that case. It's completely different than this. Yeah. You, no, I was going to say, you know, the Morgan, the, the Morgan case, the, the, the sheep case, um, I, Ron, nobody loves a good pun or even a bad pun more than Ron Cass. Yeah. And so go back and read the, the, the Morgan case about sheep. It's a sheer delight. Um, yeah. but and, think about and, you, and you shouldn't be sheepish about making puns when you have that opportunity. <laughs> but um, the, in the Morgan case, the fourth, Morgan 4, it's from 1941. It's before the APA. Congress legislates, among other things, a requirement that judges review agency action to make sure it's not arbitrary or capricious, among other things. I mean, those terms on their face, they, 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 
they suggest to me at least some room for judging the sort of the, the, the motives or intentions of the decision maker. I mean, arbitrary, maybe not so, but capricious. I mean, there's there's something there, perhaps, don't you think, or 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 really not? No, I I, I don't. I, I I'm not going to talk about you're trying to pull the wool over my eyes on this. Yeah, that's right. <laughs> it's, I mean, it, clearly, um, arbitrary means it's random. Yeah. Uh, capricious means it's just done on a whim. Uh, yeah. If you have an explanation for what you're doing that is neither random nor whimsical, you're not arbitrary or capricious. What the court, what the courts have done and what the Supreme Court has very clearly done and does, uh, for almost all of the majority opinion in the Commerce uh, Department case is to say, in order to show us that you're not being arbitrary or capricious, tell us that you've looked at things that are reasonably related to your decision. Tell us you've looked at the things that are on point. And explain to us a reason. Explain to us as you're doing this, not later on when you get to court. As you're doing, give us a reason why what you're doing makes sense. And if you do that, then as long as you're within your discretion, you are not behaving in a way that's arbitrary and capricious. Now, if you come up with with something, and again, let me go back to handing out broadcast licenses. If you say, I'd like to hand out broadcast licenses, to people who've given $100,000 or more in the last year to whatever party is currently uh, in power in the executive branch, that is a reason. It is not whimsical. It is not arbitrary. It's simply a very bad reason. So that would be an abuse of discretion. But as long as you get past those tests, then no, the court does not look at what's in the mind of the administrator. And you don't want it doing that. You don't want it doing that because courts aren't very good mind readers uh, any more than we want the Supreme Court doing that with judges of the Court of Appeals or Court of Appeals judges doing that with district court judges. We want judgments made on the basis of the decision as written at the time. And that gets back then to the discretion, the overarching discretion point, right, that that the, the Roberts Court with what it did here is creating sort of another discretionary choice for courts to make and whether they're going to to ratchet up or ratchet down judicial review. That's entirely right. And just imagine if you if you're somebody who sees courts in left and right political terms, which I think is wrong. Um, I, I don't think that's actually how courts behave. But if you see it that way, wouldn't you always suspect that if the court that has a majority of people on side A is throwing out a decision by an executive branch official on side B, that the court is doing that for reasons that may not be the best. It's one of the reasons we want courts to stick to their knitting, do what they're good at, look at the explanations that are given, see if they fit what the law, the statute, the constitution tells them it has to be. All right, so let's move on then to the third case. This is the California Board of Regents case, the Homeland Security case involving immigration policy? So in this case, you have a decision from uh, the Obama administration creating a couple of programs, the DACA and DAPA programs, that essentially give legal 
resonant status because they're not going to uh, pursue anyone in certain categories. Um, and it's a renewable status. It covers not one person or five people or 20 people, but it covers about six million people. One of them just under two million, one, um, actually just under five million. So I guess closer to, to seven million than six. Um, and the, the question is, was that law? That question is pursued with respect to one program, uh, during the Obama administration. Uh, the Fifth Circuit finds the program not to be lawful, to be, uh, going beyond what the authority is that the executive branch has, uh, with respect to immigration. <clears throat> and the case goes up to the Supreme Court by an evenly divided court. The court affirms the decision of the Fifth Circuit. So, when the uh, Trump administration succeeds the Obama administration, uh, one of the things uh, that happens is that the attorney general looks at the question, are both programs uh, tainted by the same problem? The attorney general says, yes, that decision binds the Department of Homeland Security, which is overseeing the immigration programs. Um, the uh, the, the case comes up first with, uh, the acting secretary of Homeland Security saying, therefore, we're going to repeal that program. Um, and then with the, um, uh, court having sent it back to, uh, the department saying, take another look at this because, uh, we're not sure you looked at it beyond what the legality was. And the now permanent the Secretary of Homeland Security, Secretary Nielsen, looks at it and says, no, no, they, this was right uh, the first time, and here are reasons both on law and on policy why it's right. And it goes back up to the Supreme Court, which says, well, you got it wrong, and you got it wrong. First, we're not going to bother looking at what Secretary Nielsen said because she didn't say, I'm making a fresh decision. She said, here's why the other decision was right. We're going to ignore that, which seems quite odd when you send it back to the department. The department takes another look and gives you both law and policy reasons for why the decision is, is going to be the decision of the department. But then, having done that, the court really ratchets up the level of scrutiny it's going to give this in a way that it really hasn't done. In a long time, it is used in cases like the Fox television station case. It's used a relatively deferential uh, standard when an agency is exercising delegated discretion. Clearly here, the agency is exercising delegated discretion. But now we have uh, uh, two tracks. We have one track, which is very intrusive and very um, searching and one track which is very deferential and the court seems to have given itself uh, an option to choose which track it wants depending on how it views about the underlying decision of the agency maybe that's um, a, uh, a a fairly critical view of this decision but I think it's a fairly accurate view of what's happened in this case Ron, just to make the point really clear here, 
I'm trying to understand what you're grading this the the court's analysis in the in the in the the DACA case against. Uh, are you saying that they treated this case more the, the the judicial review was stricter than in your run of the mill arbitrary and capricious case? Or are you specifically getting at the point that this case was that 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 the, the, the President Trump's policy faced sort of stricter judicial review? than President Obama's policy faced? Because that was an aspect of, of the dissenting opinions in, in that case. And I just want to make clear what you're getting at. Well, the, the part, point I'm making really is that if you go back to uh, the State Farm case, you have a, a real hard look review. But the court had moved away from that. And I think it moved away from that uh, with good reason. And you know, I'm somebody who believes that the Constitution does not permit huge open-ended delegations of authority to agencies. But within the constitutional realm of authority you can give agencies, whatever Congress chooses to give that is constitutionally permitted, the courts shouldn't be there to second-guess the agencies. They should be there to make sure the agency stays within the law. Period. And hard look review is kind of a mix. It's it's holding agencies to certain standards with respect to the law and then holding them to what seem to be super high standards with respect to exercise of discretion. I don't think that's appropriate for courts to do. Um, Justice Scalia was very much an opponent of that sort of exercise of judicial discretion. And it's very hard to police. It's hard to justify on normative grounds, on democratic grounds, on representative Republican grounds. And it's hard to police in terms of trying to supervise it. So I, I really think it's not the right way to go. And the court moved away from it. The court that handed down the Department of Homeland Security decision if you read through almost all of their other decisions on agency decisions, is a court that's been much less intrusive in second-guessing the actual internal deliberations of what the agency does. So I think this is the court giving itself another option in terms of how it reviews things. And I, I don't want to put it down to simply uh, whether it's it's President Trump or President Obama, uh, you know, I, I think the point that the uh, dissent was making is that President Obama adopted this decision without going through a rulemaking process, and it wasn't terribly well scrutinized. But there there are two possibilities. One is if he could do it that way. Um, without going through a lot of uh, very carefully constructed decision-making, then it ought to be repealable the same way. If it requires a lot of carefully constructed decision-making, then it flunks both times, not just one. And I think the dissent was making the point uh, more about the difficulty of sustaining the underlying rule under any of the uh, terminology that the court was using here than it was saying 
that this court had behaved uh, more strictly with respect to one president than another. You mentioned Justice Scalia, and maybe we'll turn back to the bigger picture now, because reading your paper, reading your paper, it reminded me in some ways, of, and this discussion reminds me in some ways, of two short pieces he wrote before he was even on the Supreme Court. One was in the late 1970s. He wrote a, an article for uh, Regulation Magazine. I think it was probably back when he was editing it um, at AEI. And the article, I guess would have been 1977, was called uh, Two Wrongs Make a Right, the Judicialization of Standardless Rulemaking. And, and he, he sort of worried that, yes, we, we do live in a world where agencies have immense discretion, and that's a, that's a problem. Um, but we, we don't solve that problem by just turning to judges to, to sort of impose more and more procedures and standards on the agencies as they do those things, right? That, that, that just because agencies have a lot of discretion doesn't mean that we should judicialize those proceedings through the courts, making the agency's own proceedings seem ever more court-like. But that's actually the wrong solution to what is already a problem. And then the second article that it reminded me of, and I, I, I just all know it, I love teaching both these articles and a few others that he wrote in the 70s and 80s in, in a seminar I, I teach at Scalia Law. Um, he wrote an article, I think it was when he was chair of the ABA's administrative law section. So it would have been around 81, 82. And it was titled Rulemaking is Politics. And the article, he was arguing that legislative rulemaking, in legislative rulemaking, we need to take legislative seriously. That what agencies are doing here in exercising this discretion and making these rules um, under the statutes that Congress wrote is making value judgments that can't always be reduced easily to specific standards, to specific um, uh, motives, and so on. Uh, and that ultimately, that's a sphere of discretion in administration that we need to respect. And of course, all of the, all of that, and I'm probably giving, I'm probably screwing up his analysis as I try to tell you, you knew him better than I did by far. So you, you can tell me what I'm getting wrong here. But all of that was, was, was examples of Justice, or then Professor Scalia, looking at the administrative state and judicial review of it and seeing a lot of the problems that he saw in judicial review of everything else, right? That the courts were expanding their own discretion, asserting themselves over the other branches of government in ways that you might or might not like the outcomes in a given case, but it just didn't accord with the proper allocation of power between courts and the rest of government. And sometimes that means the courts need to do more in terms of being less deferential. And sometimes courts need to be need to do less in terms of imposing, uh, you know, their own standards on agencies where Congress didn't impose those standards. Anyway, I'd, I'd be curious for your reaction to that because, again, reading your article, those two are those two old essays by Scalia just jumped into my mind. Well, the Justice Scalia was one of my uh, very close friends for a very long time, uh, and his two of those themes, the running themes about uh, judicial modesty really coalesce around one point. And that point is that, that court's role is the role of reading the law and applying the law and doing an undersettled rules. It's not a role of making up new procedures that aren't in the law. And it's not a role of making up their own mind about what good outcomes are for the exercise of discretion. I, I do think that his worry about unstructured judicial discretion 
it, it is even larger than mine. His, his, that was a consuming concern of his. I believe that there are still areas where courts have to have discretion, where courts have to have leeway to have some judgment in the rules they are crafting and administering under the Constitution or under uh, a statutory framework. But when you look at the set of issues you're talking about here, those dovetail with uh, Justice Scalia's view of Chevron. In Chevron, he wanted there to be aggressive judicial construction of the statute. And only when the court decided that there was something in the statute that the statute by implication gave to the agency to do, did the court stop and then say, okay, now agency, it's up to you to make the judgments that are in that open domain. We'll tell you where the box is around what you can do. But once we have set the parameters of the box, it's up to you. And he neither liked the hands-off approach that was sometimes taken to actually interpreting the statute, nor the intrusive approach that was sometimes taken to telling the agency how to exercise its own discretion. Yeah. And, and if folks want to read more about this, by the way, this is another uh, thing that Ron has written on over the years. A few years ago, uh, right after Justice Scalia's passing, uh, he published an article uh, titled Administrative Law in Nino's Wake, the Scalia effect on method and doctrine. So I'd encourage people to look that up. Ron, your, your, your article is titled The Umpire Strikes Back. And I don't think in the article you're, you're totally blunt uh, about where you're getting that from, right? This is famously Chief Justice Roberts' metaphor in his confirmation hearing, the judge is umpire. And you, you, go, to, you go to great lengths to defend the, 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 the judge's umpire metaphor in the paper. But then... I, I'll be honest, Ron, you seem to be hinting that maybe Chief Justice Roberts isn't living up to that. And a line specifically in, in the conclusion, you, you sum up the, these, this tr- trilogy of cases and you say that the cases, quote, do not show the Supreme Court as an institution dominated by justices who are unconcerned with doing an umpire's job. Rather, they show that at least some umpires, perhaps one umpire, also seem to be concerned by the way the crowd will perceive a call. Um I don't know that I'll, I guess here's where I'm going with this, Ron, is I agree with you that I think all three of these cases really do bear the mark of Chief Justice Roberts. I mean, correct me if I'm wrong here. I think that's who you're getting at. Um, but all three of the cases bear the mark of Chief Justice Roberts, even the Kaiser case where he didn't write the opinion, but rather he just joined the court's majority opinion. And I do think that there is something very, very different about the way Chief Justice Roberts is going about his, the, the administrative law that he's trying to develop on the court. It, it differs both from what Justice Scalia was trying to accomplish when he was when he was on the on the court, and it also differs from what Justice Thomas and Justice Gorsuch seem to be trying to accomplish in their own vision of of the right balance of of the judicial role and and the role of the executive branch in, in governance. But here, here's what I think. Here's what I think Chief Justice Roberts is trying to get at here. I think what might bother. Chief Justice Roberts the most in all of this is just the sheer uncertainty of government from one administration to the next, the flip-flops from one agency to the next, the swiftness with which one agency can reverse itself um, during an administration or in the change from one administration to the next. The chief 
loves to needle uh, Solicitor General's office lawyers at oral argument um, when the agency has flip-flopped. And he's said time and time again, he's, he's, he's raised this issue of agency flip-flops. I have to say, I've got some sympathy for, if, if that's what's motivating the chief's approach, I have some sympathy for it um, because I do think that stability in law is important. I mean, not permanence in law, right? All laws can be changed through the right processes. But we do live in an era of immense regulatory uncertainty, legal uncertainty, because of the way that laws are made and unmade through the administrative state. And I see these three opinions that you criticized, I see them in many ways, not in all ways, but in many ways, being sort of a, a welcome move in the direction of, of greater stability, right? Whether it's it's reducing deference to agencies and really keying that deference to to long stand to more longstanding interpretations that come out of the agency, or whether it's the court um, saying that in APA cases agencies have to be candid about what they're doing, um, have to look at the re, at the, the biggest problems that might be raised by a major change in policy. Those all, in some ways move in the direction of more stable administration. I mean, there's big problems with the cases too, but well, am, am I right about this? Or if I'm wrong, feel free to disabuse me of, of my mistakes here. Well, let me, let me start by saying that the paper uh, that you're talking about uh, begins with a quote from John Roberts from his uh, confirmation hearings where he talks about the role of the uh, judge's umpire and a quote from Oliver Wendell Holmes, where he talks about the problem with great cases and hard cases. And I think some of these are from a public politics standpoint, perhaps great cases, uh, the cases that I talk about in the paper. Um, I I disagree um, with this part of what you're saying, um, which usually you and I don't disagree. So I want to frame this very carefully. I, I disagree with the fact that this would be a salutary move because what the cases do, um, I think falls under what, what, uh, Nino Scalia called the two wrongs, um, not making a right. Um, it is saying if the agencies are inconstant, if they are changing their position as administrations change, um, the right answer isn't for the courts to prevent that from happening by having judges say, how much is too much? How much isn't too much? Unless what the judges are saying is you've stepped outside the bounds of a clear legal rule. If the public wants constancy, then the public should keep electing people who will have the same view on those issues. Or the public should elect people who will write narrower laws that give less discretion to the agencies. But if the public is electing people who go uh, in to the right one moment, to the left another moment, or take diametrically opposed views of the same thing. The public is saying, we don't have one view. We don't have one purpose. The right reading, uh, from my judgment, uh, in terms of methodology, would be for somebody on either side to look at it and say, well, they don't want either extreme. They want something in the middle. That isn't my call. My call as an analyst, my call as an academic, my call as a commentator is, is the court doing what it's supposed to do under law? And there I think the answer is no. 
and not it's not no in big bold letters uh colored in red it's it's no in in a modest way because the court generally by and large in most of what it does in most of the cases that are like this does things that look pretty respectable and pretty defensible and the reason why i picked these three cases is precisely because they're unusual now you know by definition what the supreme court does is unusual the supreme court decides less than one one million of the legal actions brought in america per year so it it's it has a discretionary docket it looks for cases that it regards as being unsettled uh dealing with areas of law where the rules aren't really clear the materials aren't really clear you can have legitimate disagreements so what it does is unusual and you would think it leads to some degree of unpredictability so those of us who criticize it for being unpredictable have to be forgiven a little for our lack of of fidelity to the what, what really is happening in the world but i think it is fair to say that these three cases the court is giving itself extra discretion is giving itself extra degrees of freedom and i think going back to to nino's point uh the two wrongs here don't make a right well, in the era of COVID, I don't get to visit my office very much, so I haven't updated the scoreboard of Gray Center working papers. My guess, Ron, is that you've published more Gray Center working papers uh, than anybody else who's participated in our program, and and for that, we're grateful. I just want to point out to our listeners the two most recent ones. Uh, one appears in the, the newest issue of the George Mason Law Review. It's also on our website. It's part of the Gray Center's um, uh, symposium on the 75th an- anniversary of the Administrative Procedure Act, and Ron wrote a paper titled "Rulemaking Then and Now: From Management to Lawmaking." It's a it's a, a an analysis of just the, the the tectonic shifts in administration from 1946 to today, and he alludes to it a little bit in this working paper we've been discussing here. And the most recent working paper, which I think is still the most recent paper on our uh, working paper series overall is titled Adding Judges, Issues in Federal Courts Governance. And so, but the the, the paper we've discussed here is titled uh, The Empire Strikes Back, Expanding Judicial Discretion for Review of Administrative Actions. Its author is our guest today, Ronald Cass. Ron, thanks for joining us. Thank you. And thanks as always to our listeners for tuning in. Uh, If you enjoyed this podcast, then please be sure to look us up, rate us, uh, give us a review, please subscribe, tell your friends, Tell people who aren't your friends anyway. And please join us for the next episode of Gray Matters.